Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Azar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode. For today, I'm joined by three esteemed Studs patrons of three different generations representing three different countries. And as a reward for their patronage of this hair project, I punish them by bringing them together on microphone in conversation with perfect strangers. Now you, my dear listeners, you're always invited to be part of the conversation. I've been truly grateful for the support of emails, DMs, and comments. You know, feel free to be in touch. All my contact channels are in the show notes. You know, I'm soon to embark on a new season, and so I'll, as ever, rely on your feedback and catch a buzz from your kind words. And if you are my loyal listener, someone who likes to support independent creators like the fine patrons with whom I'll be in conversation today, please support this project over at patreon.com slash duds. I link to it in the show notes too, so you can hop on mic and join the podcast like these three. Now today we're joined by these three fine patrons. We got a boomer, a Gen Xer, and a millennial, all patrons, all great people. So how about I bring you all on and you can tell us what you do for a buck and just for fun, maybe you could tell us what your dream job is. Let's start with the baby of the bunch, our millennial who might well be the wisest among us all. And I know this because she was once my student, not so long ago indeed, dialing in from Glasgow, once one of my favorite cities in Europe, now just one of my favorite cities. Olivia Swartha, thank you for your patronage. And welcome to Studs. Thank you so much. So I'm Olivia. I'm a fourth year student at the University of Glasgow studying statistics. And my dream job is to be a librarian. A librarian. Now you're studying statistics, but your dream job is librarian. Are you going to marry the dream and the studies or is that too far fetched? I don't know. I don't think it's too far fetched, but... I also understand that librarian isn't the easiest field to get into, and I think that's part of the appeal for me is something very fanciful to be a librarian. <laughs> it is kind of fanciful. This is perhaps a foolish question, but I wanted to introduce you as like a Glasgowian, a Glasgower. What do you call people who are from or who live in Glasgow? What's their name? So I'm a Glaswegian, technically. I don't know where that comes from, but Glaswegian is the word. I am so glad I asked, and I'm so glad I know that, the Glaswegian Olivia. Now, the south side of Chicago is the baddest part of town, and if you go down there, you better best beware of a man called Tony Demma. Tony, thank you for supporting my project. Thank you for being here. What do you do, and if that ain't it, what's your dream gig, Tony? Mr. Lazar, good to hear from you. You know, I spend a fair amount of time thinking about what it is I do because it's, it's a little bit difficult to explain and banks certainly don't understand it and are reluctant to lend money to me. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's two primary ways I derive income, if that's what we mean by work. Yeah. You know, I started off as a trader at the exchanges, but I've really funneled that money that I was able to make there into an enterprise of a bit, you know, and now I'm more of an investor and I manage farms, some hotels, a recycling company, a nonprofit. So I've almost crossed the Rubicon maybe from labor to capital. And I spend a fair amount of time thinking about that. And to that effect, one of the questions I've always enjoyed asking people, well, there are two questions in particular, what would you do if money was no object? And then I also like to ask them, what is that amount? You know, because it's not an infinite amount. And the answer I've always given to the question was I'd be some form of gardener. You know, I would take care of a, a chunk of land and use it to express creativity in a natural way. And, you know, I kind of am doing that. You know, I've got a 35-acre plot, and I'm restoring it to native habitat for pollinators. So I guess I kind of am living my dream job. That makes me 
so happy to hear Tony Demma is living the dream. You are like the Scott Nearing of the Helen and Scott Nearing Good Life story. Did you read that book, by the way, The Good Life? I am not familiar with it, but it'll jump to the front of my list now. I'll link to it in the show notes. It is the story of a husband and wife team, New York socialites, who in the 1930s moved upstate and they decided to till the land. And they sort of chronicle their story in this book, not unlike Henry David Thoreau chronicled his pursuit at Walden Pond. You know what? Let me let me send as as a thank you for being on the podcast. I'm going to send you this book and you can tell me what you think. Now, did we save the best for last? Maybe. Maybe we did. From understated and if I may say underrated Potsdam, Germany, our elder statesperson, Susan Brown. Susan, thank you so much for your generous support. Thank you for being here. Tell us, what do you do for a buck? Is it your dream job? And if not, what's the dream job? First of all, thanks very much for the opportunity to be part of the roundtable today. I live um, just outside of Berlin, Germany, in Potsdam, and I work in Berlin at a pharmaceutical company. Uh, it's a little complicated to explain what I do. I'm working in a commercial and strategic capacity, and I work closely with research and development on new product development and portfolio strategy. So you might say it involves taking molecules, compounds, and trying to make them, shape them into future therapeutic drugs to address diseases where there's a high unmet need. There was this wonderful podcast you did with the cardiologist who uh, had dedicated part of her career on reperfusion injury and addressing that problem in cardiology. And that's also a topic near to my heart. I've spent a lot of time trying to develop a drug that would help a cardiologist when she does a cardiac procedure to do less perfusion injury to the patient and give them a stronger heart emerging from the procedure. So that's sort of an example of the kind of work that I do. And my dream job would be something completely different. I think <laughs> in my, when I was in middle school, I dreamed about becoming an archaeologist. And I still think today this would be really cool. I envision myself in some exotic country or in Ethiopia or somewhere, you know, out on the dig and uncovering lost civilizations. And I like the idea of bringing together history and culture, anthropology, and the latest technology to cast light on past cultures. But I have to say that I never actually tried to become an archaeologist, though I do do a lot of digging in my work, at least figuratively speaking. <laughs> That's awesome. I really love the idea of you as an archaeologist. Never too late. <laughs> never too late. So my friends, as you know, I have devoted my life to teaching and learning. And I just wrapped the studs education season which really challenged me to reflect on my own life's work. Let me ask you all, upon reflection, how did your education prepare you for your working life? Like, where did your education succeed? Where did it fail you? And most importantly, how would you have reshaped your education to support your professional life? Tony, if it's cool, we'll just start with you, okay? Very cool. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this and I kind of wanted to say where my education failed me would be myself. I, I failed my education. I was not interested in it in any way, shape or form until I got to college. If I paid attention in class, that was the extent of my education till college. And then college just really opened up my eyes to all, everything that was out there. And if we're, if we mean our education to be college, I think it, it helped me to <laughs> broaden my horizons and learn to digest huge amounts of information, but I'm, I'm not sure it can tie directly into being, as I'm often characterized, an entrepreneur. I wear a different hat almost every single day, and many of them are hats I've never tried on before. But if I wanted to tie it into my college education, I would say it prepared me to digest large amounts of information and new topics and come out of it with some sort of coherent understanding. That's probably what I'm going to go with for an answer here. <laughs> yeah. Can I just ask, because I struggled sometimes in my secondary education to be a focus student. I had a lot going on in my life. I didn't often feel stable. 
you kind of fell on the sword and said you failed your education. Do you think that your educational environment prior to university could have done something to reach out to you so that you could have been a more committed, robust student? I don't think so. I I take all the blame there. I mean, we came from a very robust education environment at Homewood Flossmoor High School. And luckily, I think there was some osmosis taking place where just being around people who were more serious about it and paying attention and kind of moving on with their lives trickled into me somehow in ways that I could not recognize at the time. But I was fairly uh, set in how I was going to be at that time. So I don't think the system failed me in any way. Right on. Now, Susan, it's been a hot minute since you were going through the halls of high school, going through university. Can you talk a little bit about your education and the degree to which it prepared you to do what you do? Um, I think my education prepared me really well for working in the corporate environment that I do. And I have a professional degree, though. I have an MBA. And this education in general management and strategic management was ideal for going into this environment. It gave me the analytical tools I needed, uh, so the strategic foresight and leadership capabilities. But also sometimes I think that as much as the MBA helped, my undergraduate studies were in philosophy. And sometimes I feel like the philosophy has been at least as useful as the MBA because it taught me to see the big picture and it developed my critical thinking skills, my reasoning skills, and my conceptual thinking. And all of that's super important for doing strategic work. Yeah, and I guess it also, um, my education instilled me with a love for lifetime learning. And uh, that's been really important to help me develop over the years. And being in an industry where, you know, I'm, I'm working in science and I'm not a scientist. So I guess um, where did my education fail me? I, I don't really feel failed at all, but um, I'm more of a generalist than a specialist. And in Germany, it seems that specialists are highly valued and also titles are super important. And most of the people I work with are scientists of PhDs. So if I do it over again, I'd probably want to also be a scientist and get a PhD, (laughs) uh, but I wouldn't want to sacrifice either the philosophy or the MBA. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I didn't know that you studied philosophy. It Mm kind of makes perfect sense. Now, Olivia, of course, your education couldn't have failed you at all because I was part of it. So this is basically a throwaway question. <laughs> but but really, you're in the thick of it. You're just about to finish your undergraduate degree as a Glaswegian. Talk to us a little bit about how you look back on your education. I mean, you're getting to that point where it's probably a point of some nostalgia. How are you feeling about what you've been through? Well, I have loved my education. I've had an incredible education so far, and that's been an absolute privilege to be part of. And education is amazing in my eyes because it's kind of this great cushion that you fall onto. It's sort of this soft launch of your life, and it gives you this amazing means of figuring out who you are as a person and what you want to do and who you want to be. And that's been absolutely brilliant for me as I navigate, you know, those questions for my own life. I think that one thing that I do wonder about education in the form um, that I've had it is that it's very rigid and education always has felt to me as if it's been pushing me towards this great sort of abyss of university. And when you're in high school, you always have sort of the next thing to be working on. You always have the next thing to look ahead for, which is university. There's always one more year and there's always one more thing to learn and one more qualification to have. And now I find myself at the end of that for now. And I guess I look back and wonder if it's good that we have such a rigid system and whether that benefits us. I don't feel like I had the choice to not go to university and to not pursue further education just because culturally it's and it's the thing to do and because school is a very competitive atmosphere and because you're directed towards it. And so I'm so grateful to have the education that I've had and to be where I am right now. But I do wonder in an atmosphere without that sense of competitiveness and that culture of always pushing further and for more education in the traditional sense, what would I have ended up doing? Tony, you seem to want to jump in on this. 
Yeah, you know, after living, listening to Olivia's response, it kind of put my uh, <laughs> falling on the sword for my own education. It gave me an idea. And, it, you know, if somehow I could have been engaged more, it would have definitely changed the experience. Going through, you know, the rigid format of maybe American K through 12 school was just not appealing to me. And I would probably sit in class and daydream or goof off or read books because I just wasn't interested, whether I was at a different level than the people around me for better or worse, or it was a topic of uninterest. You know, certainly I could have focused and done better, but perhaps if someone had identified, hey, this, is, this isn't a dim kid, he's just not engaged at all and got me out of that shell, in that way, perhaps I could turn the table and say this education failed me a little. Yeah. Yeah, Tony pulls sword out of chest. <laughs> Wise of you. <laughs> now, one thing my education never really offered me was an empathic dialogue on balancing my life. Look, I'm probably a workaholic who feels reasonably comfortable couching his professional pursuits in the language of public service. I really have no work-life balance to speak of. I wonder how each of you speak about your so-called work-life balance. Like, how comfortable are you with the proportion of your life that you devote to work? Susan, can we lead off with you? Sure. Uh, I don't know, Daniel, if I'm a person to give you any guidance. I'm a glutton for work myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, as, right now with my job, I, I feel that the, the balance is fine, but my kids are out of the house. When they were home, there were times when the work was really too much, and I actually reduced my hours for some years. But when I'm not working, I tend to gravitate towards more work. I'm on various boards. I'm doing a nonprofit consulting project. It seems that's uh, what I like to do in my spare time as well. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of helping these organizations. So, Can I ask you if you think that the premise of the question is inherently flawed? Because it sounds like you and I both almost poo-poo the notion of work-life balance because it implies that there's a thing called work and a thing called life and that thus work isn't part of life or that you can't be lively in your work. I totally agree. I, I don't see it as a dichotomy. Yeah, work is part of my life, but I do see the need for balance for sure. And there was times in my life when work was out of control and it was exacerbated also by a long commute. And over the years, you know, I wasn't able to keep up with a lot of friends and, you know, just had to focus on, on work and family. And it's also not necessarily healthy working all that and not, you know, getting out and getting exercise and stuff. So. Yeah. Look, as you know, I'm pretty fortunate in that a lot of the listeners to this podcast are, you know, teenagers, people in their 20s and early 30s. And, you know, I think they're struggling with the work-life balance thing. You're in the thick of a very successful career, but you have a lot of perspective, a lot of opportunities to reflect. Would you have done it differently? Uh, this probably isn't the format to ask if you have any regrets. So let me ask you this. Do you have any advice for people in their 20s, let's say, who haven't found a balance that they're comfortable with? One advice that I would have is, don't waste your time commuting. I spent way too much of my life in uh, getting to work, you know, sometimes 15 hours a week. And so I, I highly recommend find a way to work where you don't have to be spending your time like that. And also, you know, look around, shop around, try to find an employer or a kind of job that, that fits well with your life. Yeah. I think now things are much better easier. I think there's much more awareness of work balance than when I first started out. I hope so. I know there's some language around creating margin in our lives, and I hope more young people pursue it. Olivia, you're a young person. You're a real hard working person too. It sounds like you love what you do and you have a lot to be excited about. When you look forward to a career... Do you envision 
work in a straight 40? Do you think you're going to do something like, you know, 30 to 45 hours a week? Or are you kind of hoping that you find something you love so much that you obsess over it? I would say that I love the straight 40. I think the straight 40 is a thing of beauty, and I've come to appreciate it a lot more in the past couple years. Being at university in a pandemic is like living with a crocodile in your house. The work is always there. It's always waiting for you all hours of the day, all hours of the night. And as much as before university, I might have entertained ideas of doing something that was very unconventional and wouldn't divide my week up so rigidly into 40 hours of work and the rest of the week off. Right now, it is really appealing to think of just having a very clear, very well-defined boundary between myself and my work. And whether that might change in coming years, I don't know. But it is definitely surprising to me that I found myself at that point. Do you think, Olivia, if you find a gig that you totally fall in love with, it comes to define you, it comes to mean something to you in more than just a transactional or financial sense, is there a world where you'd be willing to put in the 60, 70 hours a week, or is that just not in the cards for you? Well, this is the thing is I see myself as a woman of many gigs, apart from my education right now. On any given day, I'll always be painting or cooking or writing something. I am often working on something, even if it's not something that I perceive to be work. And something that allows me to get more enjoyment out of those other things that I do is the fact that I don't perceive them as work. They're not being monetized. They're not being monitored by anyone else. They're being done purely by me for my own enjoyment. And I think that's what really allows me to enjoy them. That makes me really happy to hear, Olivia. You haven't changed so much at all, have you? (laughs) That's awesome. Tony, what about you? Work-life balance, is this a thing? It's actually something I'm excellent at. I've been seeing a career coach for like 16 years now, and he jokes that I should write a book called The Five-Minute Workday. And (laughs) I, I really pride myself on blurring the line between work and play so you don't know which one you're doing at any given time. Current example is I'm going to Florida next week to look at a boat. And I love boats and I like being, you know, in warm climates, but I'm going to turn it into a business if I choose to go with it, where I rent it out, either charter or like a VRBO. And I've done this before with homes down in Florida, not because I want to live there, but I like having a place that I can go to when I want to get out of the cold Chicago winter. But by running it like a business, you actually are working when you're doing that. And it's not uncommon for me to put together a crew of friends take them down there for a week and us to, you know, do miscellaneous projects around there to prepare it for the busy season. So in doing that, you're generating income, managing a property and getting to go to Florida in the winter, all uh, as a business write-off, frankly. So (laughs) it's really quite a blurred line. Yeah, Tony, it really sounds awesome. And Truth be told, if I weren't so small and jealous, I would be wicked happy for you. But really, I'm just jealous. I'll, I'll cop to it. I'll cop to it. Hey, like, like many, my work-life balance has been totally hijacked by the pandemic. And if you don't mind my asking a question about your feelings, how has the pandemic changed the way each of you feel about your work. Olivia, you spoke to it a bit already in terms of the way that the pandemic has made university life something like having a crocodile in your house. But how has the pandemic changed how you feel about learning and engaging in academic discourse? Something that the pandemic has done that I've benefited a lot from is that it's shut me off from a lot of the learning and academic discourse. But in doing so, I've been able to expand my horizons and my connections a little bit beyond just my university bubble. And I've been really fortunate to make a lot of wonderful connections and learn a lot from people outside of university. Around a year ago, I started an initiative in my neighborhood um, as part of a community green space advocacy group um, that's been running for about a year now. 
And I would say that's something that absolutely wouldn't have happened without the pandemic because I suddenly found myself with a lot less to do and a lot less time on my hands um, than before. And I felt like I had all of this energy that had been taken away and nowhere to put it. So I found somewhere to put it and I was lucky enough to find other people who felt the same way. Some people at university and some people not. And to start this amazing group that now can continue, you know, as part of my life beyond my education and not be connected to my work and my education, but can still be such a educational experience for all of us and still be so uh, such a healthy, constructive part of all of our lives. Dude, that's awesome. And and through the Insta snaps and the chatograms and the talk tickers or whatever, I have seen some of the things that you're up to, and I will link to that in our show notes also, so our listeners can check out what you're doing, and so Tony can fund it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> We're always looking for funding. You know, I uh, I try to spread some money around to various causes that I like, so I'll definitely take a look at it. Hey, look what we did, Olivia. Tony, how has the pandemic changed how you feel about your work? It really helped me to identify how extractive my work had been up to a certain point in my life. Although that's also not very fair because I was listening to your podcast the other day, Dan, and you talked about all the jobs you had early in your life. And, you know, you could have just as easily been talking about me. And, you know, up until about 25, I was just going nonstop as labor. But then for the next 10 years, I was extremely extractive and very rewarded for it, which the pandemic really brought that to my attention, that many of us were sitting around doing nothing and receiving compensation, while essential people who were keeping things going were some of the lowest paid people out there. And it really just highlighted to me how mismatched the financial reward system is in our country. Was that hard on you? to come to that realization? It, it probably would have been a lot harder on me if I hadn't already known it and changed, but it really became crystal clear to me. You know, I, I switched over to doing what I call triple bottom line investing around 2012, where I try to value my investments not only on making money, but the social impact and environmental impact they're making. So, it was definitely hard on me to realize how extractive I had been in a job I was very proud of being good at. But luckily, I think intuitively I had known that and gotten away from it, and that soothed the cut quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that at least. Now, Susan, you had mentioned that one of the grinds of your work uh, had been the commute. Perhaps the pandemic took some of the pain of the commute away. Maybe you could talk a bit about how the pandemic changed, how you feel about your work. Yeah, the commute was big. That saves me 15 hours a week. And I love working from home. I've gone to the office maybe once since uh, since uh, the, the, the pandemic started. And I, I love it. I don't miss the office at all. Uh, if I just think about myself, I'm in a fortunate situation that our company is already very well set up online and I work with people all over the world. So all of our meetings are pretty much virtual or partially virtual. And what the pandemic did was it made everybody go online and this really leveled the playing field and the team so that before we had, let's say the Germans in the room and then other people were online and they were always a little bit out of it, but now everybody is in the same playing field and that's actually improved improved work in a way. It's kind of selfish, but I, I'm very happy with the situation. But that's only if I think about myself, because I know how difficult it's been for other people. Yeah. You know, since you brought it up, the, the pandemic has forced individuals and entire cultures to reconsider work. I think you might have been alluding to some of the cultural complexities of your job. You have Germans, Americans, internationals, etc. And you have a workplace culture that's complicated. Uh, you're an American living in Germany. You, you have some cultural context and comparative context. You know, we're in the throes of what some are calling the great resignation. There are a lot of people who are throwing in the towel altogether. And though it's a bit of a loaded question, Susan, what do you think your culture gets 
all wrong about work and like and and why do they get it all wrong and and if dare i ask what is to be done Mm -hmm. my culture i guess um if i think about my culture i grew up in a a culture that was very much shaped by protestant work ethic you know lots of hard work self-discipline and on the one hand i would was rewarded by that, you know, through success in school and at university. Um, on the other hand, as I already indicated, it, it, uh, it's often hard for me not to be productive. Um, and I don't really see a problem with working hard. And I think it's important to society that people work hard. But what I see as a problem is that people are working hard and they still can't make a decent living. Yeah. And this this uh, kind of a culture helped give rise to uh, a capitalism today, which um, is widening the gap between rich and poor, and it's increasingly transnational and concentrated and uncontrollable. So I think we need more regulation, and I think um, we need a stronger labor movement as well. Hear, 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 hear. <laughs> Please and thank you. Do you find... German culture, as you've experienced it over the last decades, to be more consistent with your values than your version of American work culture? Yes, I do. And just for exactly the the reasons or what I said, what needs to be done, I think there is more regulation here and there is quite a strong labor movement. The, the gap between rich and poor is increasing here as well, but it's it's not as far gone as in the U.S. And I think there's more of a, a social conscience here looking out for everybody than in the United States. Well, Tony, you're in the United States, and I'm keenly aware that this is an issue near and dear to your heart. What does your culture get all sorts of wrong about work and what can be done? I think we have way too much identity tied up in what we do to generate a buck. You know, I don't, I've always taken umbrage when people ask me, what do I do? Yeah. Do you mean, what do I do to generate income? Or do you mean, what do I do with my time or for enjoyment? So we have way too much identity tied to what we do and frankly, how much money it creates. And there's so much stress on people to, you know, generically we say, keep up with the Joneses, but service their debt and have two cars. I think the commercial culture in our country promotes people to focus on money rather than what they like or what they're good at or ways they can contribute to society. This is not a completely hashed out idea, but I think if we had stronger safety nets, maybe like they do in Europe, that people would feel more free to pursue things they're good at and that they're interested in. And, you know, that would create more happiness, I think. So I would really like to take the stress out of the labor market by giving them a higher standard of living. How appealing is the universal basic income or UBI to you, Tony? You think a lot about money. You're talking about safety nets. Are you a yay or a nay on the UBI in the U.S.? I'm still undecided. At first, I was against it because it kind of went against the notion that, you know, you have to support yourself. What's going to motivate people? But depending on how it's done, I could definitely be for it. I love the idea. And it's exactly what I want to do essentially for my children is create a universal basic income for all of them to take the edge off of life so they don't find themselves staying with a dead end job or in a bad relationship or afraid to take a chance moving to a new city. You know, so if I would want to do those for the people closest to me, then it seems like it's probably a good thing. And I would like to extend that, you know, to civilization at large. How it's done, that's going to be a real mess. Well, I will link to Annie Lowry's book called Give People Money. Uh, It effectively argues that the UBI would end poverty and remake the world in a positive way. It came out a couple years ago. She's awesome. And who knows, maybe I'll send you that book too, Tony. Maybe it will make you a convert to UBI. I will tell you, I read the book. I want to be a convert. I'm, I'm close. I'm close, but I'm not a convert yet. Olivia, this is a trick question for you as it is for Susan, I suppose. It's a trick question generally. You 
uh, spent your formative years in the U.S., I believe. How old were you when you moved to Berlin? I was 10. All right. And and now you're a Glaswegian. Uh, what does your culture, as you define it, get all wrong about work? I think that because my most recent work experiences have been in the UK, that's probably the thing that's the most easy for me to reflect on. And what Tony said has been really, really interesting about the US because it's so true that there is this culture of mobility and always, you know, trying to work harder for more and to earn as much as you can. And there's this idea in the US that if you've done well, it's because you've earned it. And if you haven't done well, it's because you've clearly done something wrong. You've not worked hard enough. And there's almost an opposite culture in the UK where it's very rigid. The UK is incredibly traditionalist in a way that the US and Germany both aren't. And you're not supposed to want class mobility in Britain. Everyone has a predefined place in society. And there's this really strong undercurrent of you're supposed to feel like that's all you need. You shouldn't be upwardly aspirational. You shouldn't be upwardly mobile. There's no British dream in the same way that there's an American dream. Because in Britain, there's the aristocracy. There's a very rigid ruling class, which is crazy to live in a country in the 21st century that has an aristocracy and a ruling class. It's not like in the US where it's people who have gotten lucky or it's new wealth, but it's very old generational wealth and it just exists to maintain itself. And in the UK, everything culturally is kind of a marker of class, you know, your accent um, and the clothes that you wear and where you're from and where you went to school. And it feels like that really permeates the work culture and it really permeates society because people are excluded from jobs and opportunities from the very beginning just because of things like that. And how we get rid of something like that and how we fix something like that, I mean, it feels like the only way is just to get rid of all of it, to get rid of the ruling class and to get rid of the systems of private schooling and of wealth inequality. And I think that's the only way to do it. But I also think that it's not something that British people want. It's not something that people will ask to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give Bojo a call uh, once we get off the horn here. Please do. Yeah. I'll see if we can't move that in the right direction. <laughs> hey, listen, y'all. You've all been tuning into studs. I obsess over it. I can't imagine you do. But I hope you might tell me, as listeners to the podcast, what studs episodes or moments really resonate with you? And, and why do those stand out? This could be any season, any episode. Maybe you could help as patrons of the podcast to guide me by reflecting Susan, is there uh, an episode that really matters to you or a moment that matters to you? I think the episode or the the, uh, the podcast that I appreciated the most was actually a discussion like this one with Eric Spencer and your two other friends talking about the changing nature of work and because it really challenged some of my views about work and especially when one of them was suggesting about minimizing work and the importance of that. And here I am, someone who's almost maximizing work in my life. But I really like the podcasts that touch on the topic of work itself. That podcast also led me to listen to the one on Eric Spencer delivers. I love that podcast. Uh, I used to have a mailman like Eric Spencer and it was really heartwarming to hear his stories about how when he brings the mail, he's sometimes the only contact to the outside world for some of the people or, or how they put out messages for him every day. And I, that was really wonderful, wonderful anecdotes. But also to hear how he's active as the president of his union and out there uh, doing what he can to, to make things better for, for all the postal workers in, in Vermont. Thank you so much for saying that. He was actually the first person I interviewed, and I'm glad that you and I share a, a, a passion for that dialogue and an interest in him. I will shoot you a link to this episode that I did with Justin Jackson, who is a SaaS guy, a software as a service, and 
he reflects like Eric and Mike and Carl did with some of that empathy for finding the right place for work in your life. I'm so glad that we share an interest in these dialogues. Olivia, is there an episode that jumps out at you or a moment? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a moment both because of the content itself and because it was the first time that I thought, hey, maybe maybe I'll give Mr. Lazar's podcast a listen. Hey, didn't miss didn't Mr. Lazar, my old history teacher, start that podcast? Um, <laughs> and so I forget what I whether I just chose a random episode or maybe it was the most recent one at the time. But it was the first episode of Studs that I ever listened to. And it was the one where you interview, I think his name is um, Sam Tatel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but the man who runs a companion service for the elderly. And I just absolutely loved his whole story about how it started and the way that he explained the beginnings of his service and everything that they had done for people. And he just seemed like such a warm, sort of compassionate person. And the interview was just absolutely wonderful. And I thought you were doing an absolutely wonderful job of bringing these really evocative, really beautiful stories out of him. So that episode definitely made an impression on me. Thank you so much. And thank you for your kind words. And you're right. Sam is really a beautiful dude. I will say that I'll take zero credit for that interview. That's all Sam. He's just so earnest and empathic and engaged. Just a beautiful person. Tony, you're a beautiful person. Is there an episode or a moment that jumps out at you? So I have a small confession. I did not start listening to your podcast till you told me I was going to be on it. <laughs> I simply was supporting it because, you know, I, I kind of followed very loosely what you're up to in life. And I was a fairly significant Studs Terkel fan earlier in my life. Interesting note, I tried to buy his house when he died. I sent a letter to it and the son replied and said they were going to keep it. Huh. But that I wanted to be my family's forever home because it was right on the lakefront on a double lot. That's where I wanted to live, and I tried to buy it, and they rebuffed me. Huh. But um, How about that? in listening to your episodes the last week, I really like you as the star. You know, you, your empathy comes through so strongly, and it's so non-judgmental. And just listening to you do question and answers was, you know, probably my favorite episode, where you cracked a couple beers with your old friend. But, you know, you're you're the star. <laughs> Not trying to toot your horn, but you're the reason I listen. Uh, you're making me blush. <laughs> Although I have to say, that's like the last thing I want to hear, both because uh, it makes me uncomfortable to take praise, but also because I try uh, so intensely to make the podcast not about me at the same time. Uh, you know, I am on the microphone and it makes me feel real good to know that you and I can connect with one another across the Atlantic after decades. I haven't, you know, had the pleasure of hearing your voice. And so it's just awesome. Thanks, Tony. Um, maybe we should go from looking back on studs to looking forward. Look, I'm soon to embark on an ambitious season of the podcast where two 20-somethings, one of whom, in full disclosure, is the amazing daughter of Susan Brown. These two 20-somethings are going to join me in an exploration of the futures of work. And I would love to get input from the three of you. I would love for you to help me to shape that season, right? So what would you want, my dear patrons, from a season that explores the future of work with aspiring people in their 20s? What types of themes would you want us to explore? Uh, what types of themes would you want to have us avoid? You all are patrons of the podcast, committed in your own ways. And I really believe that, as our listeners will surely agree, very insightful people. And so I would love to hear some of your insights. What would you want from that season? Olivia, you're in your 20s. I'm probably going to try to sucker you onto that season as a guest. What would you like to have us explore? Well, I look forward to being suckered. And I think that I would really love some exploration of different types of work and education. And I would really love to see 
the boundaries being pushed as to what work is and what the different ways are that we as young people can get a good start in the workforce, not good in terms of, you know, our ability to make money or forge a good career in the traditional sense, but in terms of ways to do things that are both meaningful and sustaining, things that are both emotionally sustaining and physically sustaining, and whether those two things can be married. Yes, I really think that sustainability emotional, professional, economic sustainability will be one of the key themes. So great minds think alike. Ours do also. Thanks, Olivia. Tony, what would you want to hear about from a season with 20-somethings? This is kind of ironic. So, you know, I think you and I were both history majors in school, but I strongly prefer to look forward and, you know, focusing on how we can bring about the changes we want to see would be what I would like to hear from them. And, you know, tying in with some of the things I'm doing right now, I really believe symbiotic relationships are going to be the key going forward. And, you know, circular economies doesn't even have to just mean they're commodities, but people, you know, let's tie them all in, complement each other and move the ball forward. And I'd, I'd really like to hear from them, You know, what are steps we can take to actually make things better? Sustainability, symbiosis, and Susan. Your kid's going to be one of the co-hosts of this podcast, along with her pal, Alex Besta. What do you want from that season? Well, I'm, I'm a marketeer of sorts. And so my first question would be, you know, who do you see as your target audience here? Is this a season that's more for the 20-somethings or is this for all of your listeners? And I would hope it would be for all. So I would try to find a good balance between helping the 20-somethings uh, think about their lives and the topics that are of most interest to them, like how to get into a certain field or figuring out what certain careers are really like. I would be interested in finding out about how this generation views work, how they view work-life balance. Uh, In my company, we're hiring a lot of young people and they bring in a lot of fresh energy and the company really wants to offer this generation a workplace that's attractive for them. And so it's important for us to understand what makes them tick and and what they would like to, to, to get out of their work. Promise you I'll do my best. I promise you. Susan, you hit the nail right on the head. What I'm trying to do here is to create a meaningful, empathic, intergenerational dialogue. And that's what this working roundtable is, right? Three people, three countries, three different generations. Help me to drive this train into the station, you three. What would you want to tell your 18-year-old self about how to appropriately engage with work? Olivia, you were 18 A few years ago, you've learned a lot since. If you could plant a message in that beautiful brain of yours when you were a wee 18-year-old, what would you tell yourself? When I was 18, I was very fixated on my career and how my career would define me and what job I would have and how that would define me and how that would define the rest of my life's path. So if I could tell anything to my 18-year-old self, I think I would tell her that the work doesn't always matter and it doesn't have to matter. And that really in a happy life, work can be a very small part of your life and of yourself, even if it's a large part of your time. And that it's possible to fill your life with all sorts of fulfilling and engaging things, even if those are outside of work and even if work doesn't always feel like it's one of those things. Tony, you admittedly weren't seeing things as straight as perhaps you wish you would have when you were an 18-year-old, what would you like to say to that young man? And what would you like to tell our 18-year-old listeners today? So it's tough because all the things that happened shaped who I became and how I got here. And I'm pretty happy with that. So I would try to tell my 18-year-old self, just relax, it's going to be okay. You don't need to have so much anxiety about the future. You know, and I think a lot of that anxiety came from growing up 
fairly lower middle class and there being a lot of stress around the house about money all the time. So it was a, it was a big focus for me because I didn't want to experience that stress. I think I could have enjoyed the ride a little bit more if I wasn't so worried about the future. Yeah. Grappling with the anxiety of youth uh, shouldn't be left to the young alone. That's for sure. Susan, what would you want to tell your 18-year-old self about how to engage with work? I'm very much with Tony. And I would add, I think it's good to experiment, to try out different roles, and don't worry about what others think. Follow your heart, follow your interests. You will land in a good place. A perfect way to conclude, we can always count on you, Susan, to bring a precise, concise insight. (laughs) I can't thank the three of you enough for participating in this dialogue, for adding to the conversation, for being patrons of the project. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to reconnect with all three of you. And I am, and I say this without exaggeration, not just grateful, but honored that you patronized this project. It makes me real happy. Thanks for everything. I appreciate it. I wish all three of you health and wellness. Please take care during these funky times, all right? Thank you so much, Mr. Lazar. It's been great to be on, and I can't wait to hear the episode. Dan, it was great catching up. I got to get back to my pool of pearls. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, It was a real pleasure, and uh, thank you, Tony and Olivia. (laughs) 